Welcome to Overlooked, a podcast produced by Tunuka Media. My name is Yemi, and I'll be your host for the show. Released weekly, I share Overlooked stories from around the world with you. This will include the good, the bad, the weird, and sometimes the absolutely hilarious. Come back often, share with your friends, and feel free to add the podcast to your regular podcast rotation, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect on social media. Just search for Tunuka Media. That is T-U-N-U-K-A Media. If you learned something new, kindly support the show. Give Overlooked a like or a high rating. This would really help the show grow and get more people like you to learn something new. Finally, if you come across stories or articles that you think should be featured here, please don't hesitate to share them. Now, it's time for this week's episode. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Overlooked. Current pandemic state of the world aside, I hope you've been able to take some time and enjoy the summer. So let's start this week's episode on a positive note. In the United States, two sisters from Nebraska that had not seen each other in 50 years were recently reunited when one of the sisters ended up being the medication aide for the other sister who was recovering from COVID-19. Beth Burrow, the sister who now works as a medication aide at a nursing home located in Nebraska, was looking over her patient list when she recognized the name Doris Crippen as the sister she had been trying to locate for years. Doris had been in recovery at Nebraska Medicine for more than a month while recovering from both COVID-19 and a broken arm. Bev knew that the resident with the name was deaf. So what she did was that she took the chance that it might be her sister and wrote their father's name, Wendell Huffman, on a whiteboard for her to read. Doris was the first of Huffman's 10 children with three different mothers. Burrow was the youngest. Their father left six children at home alone, and the state of Nebraska separated the siblings in 1967. Now, Bev is 53 years old, and Doris is 73 years old. The women said that they had been searching for one another for years and knew each other's names, but were never able to find contact information. Doris said she now considers her brush with the coronavirus to actually be a blessing. In an interview, Doris declared that she was the happiest person in the world and still could not believe that she finally was able to find her sister. Bev also shared that she was excited to tell her oldest sister about some of their siblings and lots of nieces and nephews. Between the combined marriages of their fathers and mothers, there are now 16 kids in all. One brother died in February and Bev hasn't yet been able to find four others. They've been catching up ever since they found each other, so what Bev does is that she stops by when she has a few spare moments on her shift. Doris is eager to recover and return home to her apartment in Omaha. The mother of three could not sleep the first night after meeting her sister, I can imagine, and says that what they've been doing since they met is actually talking about planning a family reunion. I guess the saying is true. Sometimes... When you least suspect it, good things happen. A Japanese district court has now recognized 84 victims of a radioactive black rain as survivors of the Hiroshima atomic bombing last week. 
After five years of struggle, this has cleared the way for them to receive the medical and social benefits that had not been received as survivors of Hiroshima. The decision came just days before the 75th anniversary of the attack. All this time, the plaintiffs have been demanding to receive the same rights and privileges as those who were directly affected by the explosion of the American Little Boy nuclear device that was detonated in the final days of World War II. The plaintiffs had lived in areas outside Hiroshima's boundaries, but were still affected by black rain radioactive fallouts. The plaintiffs had lived in areas outside Hiroshima's boundaries, but were still affected by black rain radioactive fallouts, which lasted for hours after Little Boy fell. Their new status has been assigned under the Atomic Bomb Survivors Relief Law, which was passed in 1957 and until recently only applied to people who lived within the city boundaries of Hiroshima as of August 6, 1945. In 1976, Tokyo divided affected areas into heavy rain and light rain zones. But many locals complained that the areas were too close together. They did not agree that the rain that fell on one side of the river could be designated radioactive, while rain on the other side of the river was considered safe. During the five-year-long court battle, more than 10 of the complainants aged in their 70s, 80s, and 90s unfortunately died. The Japanese government recognizes around 650,000 people as eligible for Hibakusha status, nearly half of whom were Hiroshima residents. Shieji Takato, 79, which was one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit, was four years old when the bombing happened. He developed arm lymph inflammation when he was only eight and has since suffered from stroke and heart problems. Takato added that he had been anxious because all the plaintiffs are now elderly and most of them were in their 80s and 90s. The verdict ordered the city and prefectural government to provide the plaintiffs a certificate that recognizes them as A-bomb victims or atomic bomb victims, which grants them medical benefits worth about $300 a month for the time they receive treatment. For listeners who do not know, The United States dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, a city in southwest Japan, on August 6, 1945, killing more than 70,000 people instantly. A second bomb then followed three days later over Nagasaki and killed 40,000 more people. Thousands more survived but suffered incurable illnesses caused by radiation fallouts. The bombings also caused radioactive black rain to fall across the region. What black rain is, is that it's a mixture of nuclear fallout particles, carbon residue from citywide fires, and other dangerous elements. The black rain was inhaled, it also fell on people's skin and clothes, and contaminated food and water, causing widespread radiation poisoning. The U.S. remains the only country to have ever used an atomic bomb in war. In 1958, the Hiroshima City Council passed a resolution condemning Truman for refusing to express remorse calling the ex-president's stance a gross defilement commented on the people of Hiroshima and their fallen victims. But Truman's position only hardened, writing in response, I think the sacrifice of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was urgent and necessary for the prospective welfare of both Japan and the Allies. In 2016, ex-president Barack Obama became the first sitting U.S. president to visit Hiroshima, where he called for a world that was without nuclear weapons. So let's digress for a hot minute into our fun fact for this week. 
Did you know that Louis Vuitton, a well-known luxury brand, burns quite a lot of their unsold inventory, such as bags, each year? And no, they aren't the only ones that do this. Apparently, brands like Burberry, H&M, Nike, and Urban Outfitters also destroy unsold merch. Apparently, the reason that company does this is to avoid selling its products at low prices in order to maintain some form of exclusivity. Another major reason for doing this is that the U.S. has a law called duty drawback. From what I read, according to this law, if something imported into the States after paying duty is somehow destroyed with the appropriate customs notification, the duty is then paid back to the company. As Louis Vuitton's bags have a very high duty rate that are around 15 to 25% on average, the company ends up getting back a portion of their losses by getting their duty back. From what I read as well, some industry insiders say that before destroying the discounted bags, Louis Vuitton organizes a sale that is exclusively for employees. So, there you go. Over the last two weeks, there have been mass rallies in the Russian Far East city of Khabarovsk. Tens of thousands are protesting the arrest of the region's governor, Sergei Fergal. Local media has estimated that between 15,000 to 50,000 people have been attending these protests. Fergal was arrested on July 9th and flown to Moscow where he was put in jail for two months. The Russian Investigative Committee have said that he is suspected of involvement in several murders of other businessmen between 2004 and 2005. Fergal has denied the charges, which relate to his time as a businessman with interests ranging from imports of consumer goods to timber and metals. Karbov's residents have called the charges unsubstantiated and denounced the Kremlin for targeting a governor that they elected. They have demanded that Fergal face the charges in Khabarovsk and question why investigators waited so long to accuse an official who should have undergone background checks prior to being put in office. Fergal is a member of the Nationalist Liberal Democratic Party and was elected governor in 2018 after defeating a Kremlin-backed incumbent. During his two years in office, he has earned a reputation as the people's governor. He cut his own salary ordered the sale of an expensive yacht the previous administration had bought, met with protesters when rallies happened, and significantly reduced the flight fares for residents in remote areas. The unauthorized protests are the largest ever that have taken place in Khabarovsk, a city of about 590,000 people. President Putin has now officially fired Fergal and appointed a legislature from the same LDPR party, Mikhail Dextarev, to act as his replacement. The move was met by anger from residents who said that Mikhail was an outsider who lacked both the experience and connection to the region that they deemed necessary. This story is evolving. The One Malaysia Development Burhad Scandal, or 1MDB Scandal, is an ongoing political scandal occurring in Malaysia. In 2015, Malaysia's Prime Minister at the time, Najib Razak, was accused of channeling over RM 2.67 billion, which is approximately 700 million US dollars, from 1MDB to his personal bank account. 1MDB is a government-run strategic development company. The event triggered widespread criticism across Malaysia. Many called for Najib Razak's resignation, including Mahathir Mohamed, one of Najib's predecessors as prime minister, who later devoted who later defeated Najib in the 2018 general election and has since returned to power. 
The U.S. investment bank, Goldman Sachs, and others were were also implicated in the elaborate scheme. So that's a high-level background. Now let's flash forward to July 2020. Goldman Sachs has reached a settlement of 3.9 billion U.S. dollars with the Malaysian government over the multi-billion dollar scandal. According to the Malaysian Ministry of Finance, the deal includes 2.5 billion U.S. dollars of cash payouts by Goldman and a guarantee by the bank to return at least 1.4 billion in assets linked to 1MDB bonds. The deal is expected to resolve all outstanding charges and claims against Goldman Sachs by Malaysia. U.S. prosecutors said that the stolen money was used to buy artwork, luxury properties in New York and London, and fund the Wolf of Wall Street movie. I thought that last part was ironic. Malaysian prosecutors filed charges in December 2018 against three Goldman Sachs units for misleading investors over bond sales, totaling $6.5 billion U.S. dollars that the bank helped raise for 1MDB. Goldman Sachs has consistently denied that it did anything wrong and pled not guilty. They said that certain members of the former Malaysian government and 1MDB lied to them about how proceeds from the bond sales would be used. Up until about a year ago, there was a sense that Goldman might not engage with Malaysia's claim and would simply just not pay, accepting that it would never do business in Malaysia again. In cold economics, this course of action could come with some merit. It's hard to imagine a time frame within which Goldman would make $2.5 billion in fees in Malaysia. That leaves us to assume that Goldman wants to settle for reputational reasons. Its reputation has been damaged across Southeast Asia and not just in Malaysia. And because settling this makes resolving Goldman's outstanding issues with the U.S. Department of Justice a little bit easier. Even with charges for Malaysia essentially settled, the bank still faces an investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice, which is reportedly looking into the violation of the U.S.'s Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. The law makes it illegal to pay foreign government officials in order to secure their help in getting or keeping business. There have historically been problems with the maltreatment of animals that have been kept in captivity for entertainment purposes. One form of entertainment that comes to mind would be the circus. These issues include how these animals are captured, treated, and subsequently trained. So, in order to stop the animal mistreatment, a circus in Germany has replaced live animals with realistic holograms. I think that's really cool. According to Science Reporter, they made animations that are projected to real size with computers. The computer technology now also allows animals like monkeys, elephants, or even wild horses to do acrobatics on stage. The name of the circus is Circus Roncalli. It took a crew of 15 designers and software engineers to pull the whole thing off, and the results are breathtaking. I've included a video in the blog. The move by Circus Roncalli to stop using animals in their circus has been welcomed by many animal rights activists. Would you see this? I like holograms. I think holograms are cool, so I'll probably go. In our last story for this week, Liberia has become the latest African country to become a member of the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank, or AIIB. There are now 10 African members, including Egypt and Ethiopia, Ghana and Madagascar, and nine prospective members, which includes Djibouti, Kenya, and South Africa. The AIIB now has 103 approved members from around the world. According to Jane Lequin, the president of AIIB, 
The growth of AIIB's membership from Africa demonstrates the understanding that multilateralism has the potential to address extraordinary challenges and that through cooperation and partnership, a much sustainable future can be created. According to the AIIB's website, the bank's approved African members are responsible for over 60% of the continent's gross domestic product and represent 46% of Africa's population. The AIIB is a multilateral development bank with a stated mission to improve social and economic outcomes in Asia. It has its headquarters in Beijing and started operations in January 2016. According to the African Development Bank, Africa's infrastructure financing gap pre-COVID was set to between 68 to 108 billion US dollars. According to the African China Review, China has a 26.6% share ownership in the bank, followed in distance by India and Russia with respective shares of 7.6 and 6%. While the bank has provided substantial financing for infrastructure development, a disaggregation of the funded projects by membership category shows that about 95% of all approved and proposed projects are implemented in regional member countries, with only four of the 36 non-regional member countries benefiting from six of the 115 projects that had been approved by the bank. Also, of the 16 African countries that have gained membership to the bank, only Egypt has benefited from projects valued at about 660 million US dollars in three sectors, energy, water, and financial institution. Egypt's location on the Belt and Road Corridor may be an advantage since the country may be seen as the main trading route that links Asia to the rest of the world. Liberia's move to become Africa's newest member of AIB is laudable. Membership to such multilateral financial institutions comes with benefits for the country and its people. It does not only create an additional source of low-income financing for the critical projects, but also creates employment opportunities for qualified citizens of the country who aspire for international employment. Liberia as a member is expected to also benefit from project financing that has a value more than 20 to 30 times the value of the investment that the country makes in the bank. With the membership approved, Liberia also stands to benefit from an announced 10 billion COVID-19 pandemic support package that the AIB has put aside for member countries. This brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. As usual, all references can be found in the blog. Just click the link in the bio. Even if you're listening on a podcasting app, there is a link to the bio in the episode description. Anyway, Thank you guys for spending some time with me on your Monday. Have yourselves a great week ahead. Thanks for listening, friends. As a reminder, the podcast is released weekly. Subscribe or follow across social media to be notified when a new episode is released. Overlooked is a Tunuka Media production which also includes shows like Africa in My Kitchen, with more on the way. Follow Tunuka Media on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter to connect to say hi, or to be on the forefront of upcoming shows and program schedules. Until next time, I'm your host Yemi, wishing you a better tomorrow.